show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and we're so lucky to have this gentleman with us today. He is a great drummer, and he's played on, oh, I don't know, a half a dozen plus, no, a half a dozen, a dozen or 14, 15 albums by the great Weird Al Yankovic. Of course, I'm talking about John Bermuda Schwartz. John, welcome to the Rick Z Show. Oh, thank you, Rick. Thanks very much. Thanks so much yourself for being here and taking the time out to do this interview. We really appreciate it. You're in LA right now, aren't you? Yes. Good, good. How's the weather out there? Uh, weather's good. Uh, not too hot, not too cool. Um, you know, a bit smoky from the fireworks uh, on July 4th. But other than that, uh, you know, generally very pleasant. It's nice being near the water. Absolutely. We're, let's just start with your name, John Bermuda Schwartz. I get the joke. Is that Weird Al that came Joke? Up? What? <laughs> you think that's funny? What? No, you know, actually that uh, Al, Al gave me the Bermuda name. He thought, you know, at, at the time... Uh, early 1981 he thought because weird al was in quotes that i should have a funny nickname uh, as well and something that could go in quotes and so he called me bermuda and that has stuck uh, ever since it's on my driver's license credit cards bank you know checking account everything i mean it's become an official you know a very official pka professionally known as it's your legal name uh, and uh, essentially, yes. I mean, quasi legal. It's not on a document anywhere, but it's on documents everywhere. Did so I, I am Bermuda. Did he give you that right away? Not immediately, but but about four or five months later, uh, he thought that would be you know a good idea. You know, I was starting to be on the Doctor Demento show, answering phones and stuff like that. And I was kind of one of the cast members there, and all of the cast members also had nicknames: Musical Mike and and uh, Jungle Judy, and you know everyone had a, a sort of a funny name. So he thought it would be important for me to to have that as well. You know, not to mention that he had one. So he he gave that to me maybe maybe in February or March of 1981, and it's just it stuck with me ever since. And what did you think first time you heard it? I, you know, I, I got it. I, I, you know, I, I know why it's funny. And uh, I thought, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be Bermuda. Fine. You know, I didn't really think anything of it. I just, you know, it, at that point in our careers and at that point in my life, I mean, I was like 24. Uh, it was all just fun and, and it didn't really, you know, it wasn't any big deal to, to have a funny name suddenly. Well, it's great. I love it. Were you drawn to comedy music originally? Because I know during your upbringing, you listened to a lot of Alan Sherman, and I know you're a big fan of Alan Sherman. Does that play into what you were looking for, or is it just a coincidence? Well, it's just a coincidence. I mean, I wasn't really seeking that per se. I, I just, I wasn't even seeking a band at all, you know, uh, when I met Al. Uh, I was already in a band. I had a regular day job. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I wasn't trying to find anything. I just stumbled upon him. It was a right place, right time, one of those things. And uh, I just, I, I told him that night, you know, I said, you should have a band. I'll, I'll be your drummer. And it just kind of went from there. Yeah, I think if I'm not mistaken, because I'm a huge fan of the Dr. Demento show. And when I was a kid, I listened to it all the time. I believe I heard that live recording. At that time, you weren't working with Al yet. He asked you to play, what, uh, drums on like a guitar case or something like that. You were working for the Dr. Demento show at the time, right? Well, I had only just met Dr. Demento, and I was there being interviewed. I was on the live show here in L.A. when it used to run on Sunday nights, and I was just there being interviewed. So Al knew quickly that I was a drummer. Uh, he was debuting a song. He had just he just written another one, Rides the Bus, that weekend, in fact, and uh, was going to debut it live on the air. He actually asked one of his other friends to beat on his accordion case, and for whatever reason, as simple a task as that would have been, uh, he was just very nervous about that. 
And that friend asked if I would do it. You know, he says, do you want to do it? I, I don't know if I really want to go on there and mess with Al's thing. So I, you know, I, I told Al, you know, I'm, I'm going to play on your accordion case now. And we, and all the cast members there rehearsed, went through the song a couple of times. So of course we know what to expect. And basically it was just accordion, accordion case. And then everyone else had noisemakers and, and, you know, were clapping hands and kind of singing along in the background. And, and that was it. So we played it live over the air. Uh, Dr. Demento happened to roll tape on it and it actually became a single later. And it was after that playing it on the air you know, I told Al, I said, you know, you should have a band. I'll be your drummer, you know, realizing that some things probably needed a little more, little more musicality than just accordion and, and noisemakers. I believe you did an accordion case solo. It's like, it's almost at one point <laughs> it's flooded with delay and you have all the, yes. it's really funny. I wanted a copy of that single right away when I heard it. I remember that was my introduction and I guess everybody's to Weird Al. One of the interesting things about you as a drummer is you play so many styles because Weird Al has so many styles. He's trying to do parodies of Madonna and Michael Jackson and all these different people, not to mention all the different styles he's imitating with his original material. Are you just that kind of drummer that can adapt to all these different styles or did working with Al push you into having to play in all these different styles? I'm thinking of uh, One More Minute, you got the 50s thing. You, you've got uh, like a virgin or like a surgeon actually and eat it and all that stuff but on his original stuff he's he's got b-52 slime creatures from outer space he's the james taylor thing with the good old days he's got so many different styles uh ska music uh, what what's that to your horoscope for today right it's one of my favorites uh, drum performance wise oh thank you how did you learn to play all these different styles well a lot of them drum wise are, are very similar a lot of it is just kind of two and four at various tempos uh you know playing blues and and doo-wop and stuff i mean that that's all kind of part of my you know inner library of stuff i had played in cover bands and things like that but i definitely you know he he definitely uh, made me learn stuff uh and and made me think and made me grow as as a musician and a drummer you know i had to eventually if i wanted to stay in the drum chair i eventually had to learn how to program drums how to create drum sounds not just drum sounds other percussive type sounds how to just make up sounds uh, sound design that it actually has a name now and i i had to grow into that you know if i wanted to be in charge of all the drum parts on the records and i just and i wanted to do that very early on i bought my first drum machine in early 1985 because i didn't want some other guy some other keyboard player or something like that creating drum parts when that was my job. So I, I got into that very early on and, and evolved with it as much as I could. I was always a little behind the curve technology-wise because there were things going on that were, one, expensive, or two, sounds that we hadn't gotten into yet. But when we needed Simmons sounds, I went out and got a Simmons kit. When uh, we needed whatever sound we needed, I adapted. you know. And there's a certain style to that kind of programming, too. So if I did programming for one of our original songs where I didn't, let's say we weren't copying a song and I had a, a roadmap to follow, I had to actually think, you know, I had to think in those terms, you know, how would this be programmed and should I program it or should I play it acoustically? And there's some things that should only be played acoustically and some things that should only be programmed. And knowing that, you know, Al very often left that up to me. If it wasn't extremely obvious, if, if I could have gone either way, I always made that decision, which way to go, you know, no, this would sound better programmed or no, this would actually sound better played live, but played very straight as if it were programmed, you know, like as if I was a really good drummer or something. And I, I think back, there's a song we did kind of a Sparks tribute, homage, a style parody called uh, Virus Alert. 
And yeah. I played I played that live. It could very easily have been programmed. And for whatever reason at the time I played it live, and it's a very straight ahead part, but I regard that as one of my best tracks because it is so fastidious. And it's so, I mean, it was one of those magic tracks where I just locked right in. You would never really guess it was live. You would say, oh, that's just programmed. It's too good to be uh, to be played live. Yeah. So I'm actually, I'm very proud of that one. But typically programmed stuff sounds like it's programmed. And that's part of why you do that. There's also sounds you get on some of those things that can't be duplicated on acoustic drums. So right. there are occasions where that has to happen for that reason as well. And I'm, I'm in charge of those decisions and in charge of those sounds and in charge of that programming. So I've grown into that, you know, and I've used a little bit of that with other bands outside of Al, but mostly that's just something exclusive to Al, you know, and that's why I do that. That's why I own the electronics that I do and, and learned what I learned and have the sound library that I have. It's because of him. Well, you certainly cover all bases, that's for sure. And oh, thank you. Uh, I like Dog Eat Dog. Remember that one? Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Talking I, Heads. I talking Heads, exactly. More Cowbell. <laughs> I was a, a rabid collector of Weird Al vinyl albums when I was a teenager. I guess when his stuff was Eat It and things like that, I, I guess I was probably in my early teens. So it was, it was right up my alley. I had in 3D, I had the first album, I had Polka Party and Dare to be Stupid was one of my favorites. What is your favorite Weird Al song to play? And before you answer that, think about this too. What is your favorite drum performance on a Weird Al song? Well, the drum performance would, would have to be Virus Alert just because it is so what it was supposed to be. Right. You know, I, I listen to that and I don't hear things where I say, I wish I had done that a little bit differently, or I wish I can feel a little bit of pushing or pulling, or I wish I had chosen a different fill or whatever it was. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of songs like that, that only I'm really sensitive to. I mean, ultimately Al would be the one to say, I didn't really like that part, you know, as the producer and as the artist, I, I need you to change that part. Very little of that coming from him. But that virus alert was one of the songs where I really just, I mean, it's not a hard part. It's very straight ahead. It's so good. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it just is, is just very clean. So that's my favorite uh, recorded drum part, you know, stuff that we play. I mean, I'm obviously listening to the song as, as we're playing it, but I like all songs. I mean, I, I, I just, it's hard to say that there's a favorite. I mean, I, I have certain favorite Al songs that I think are extremely clever, like Word Crimes of the last album is, is a brilliant song, I think. And there's a lot of really good Skipper Dan from a couple of albums prior is a very kind of a poignant, you know, about somebody that wanted to be an actor and, and ends up, you know, being the, the announcer on a cruise ride at, at Disneyland, basically, you know, and, and like telling jokes, you know, stuff like that. And it's a very kind of a sweet song and you know not something you expect in a comedy song you know to actually have like a nice message but i i enjoy playing everything in concert there's nothing i play where it's like oh god i'm, I'm bored or i can't wait till this is over and just i just enjoy playing everything and that's the same with a lot of songs in in my original bands or in my cover bands where you know there are some songs that a lot of musicians brown-eyed girl mustang sally there's certain songs that you know in the midnight hour that get played a lot and they just, and people say they hate playing them because they just play them too much. It's like, well, then you're listening to the song. You're not enjoying playing, you know, you're, you're trying to listen to the song. And if you don't like that song, you're not having a good time playing. I always have a good time playing. There's, you know, I, I never play a song that I don't like. And, and if it's not even one of my favorites, I still enjoy playing the drums. So with Al, I, I enjoy playing all those songs. Uh, it's just, it's fun for me to play drums. And that's, that's why I'm up there. Well, it shows, it shows. 
I can well, tell you're having a good time. Uh, in fact, that that's true of the whole band. It's very obvious if if anyone is lucky enough to see one of the stage shows that they're an awful lot of fun. Parodies. When you do a parody of a tune, do you have to study the original version of the song and kind of get all the parts down? And is that how you approach it? Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, that's the goal. Is uh, you know not only part wise but sound wise. And on a on a parody in the older days when there were a lot of parodies that were still. Uh, you know, by by live bands where there were acoustic drums, I would go out and buy, if, if I didn't already have it, the, the cymbals that were appropriate, if there was a specific snare sound that I needed or a specific type of tambourine sound, let's say, or, or some other, whatever percussion sound I needed, I went out and bought that thing that sounded as close to the original wow. recording that we were parroting as, as humanly possible or as financially possible, I guess. Uh, so I ended up with a large arsenal of gear. I mean, a tremendously large cymbal collection because cymbals are very individual sounds and if you want a certain sound you have to and you don't have it in a cymbal you have to go find a cymbal that has that sound you can't alter an existing piece of gear the way you can tune a drum the way you can tune a snare drum and and change heads and things like that and extract not every sound in the world but a lot of different sounds from one piece sometimes you just need a different drum different size a different material but right. you know you could you can do a lot of stuff with you know you can imitate a hundred different snare sounds with you know a dozen different snares. Now that didn't stop me from acquiring over a hundred and ten snares over the years. <laughs> but That's a lot of but yeah, it's, a, it's way too many snares. I mean, honestly, I use about five of them. But I have uh, whatever sound I need, I can get. You know, I have every material, I have uh, every size, I have every wood type. Uh, on that, I've got an assortment of different heads that can take those things further. If you change the wires on the bottom, that makes a different sound. There's just a lot of things that go into a sound. So, yes, we and and we all explore and dig in and listen. And listening is very important on those parodies to getting not just the parts, but the sounds. The sounds are often harder than the parts. Sometimes the part is pretty simple, but getting those sounds. And Al really wants those sounds. You know, he really wants, if you hear that song on the radio, you know, if it's going to be the single and you hear the intro to that song musically, ideally you should think it's the original song coming up and you don't know what's happening till the lyrics kick in. And then you know if it's the original or if it's Al. So he really wants the songs to sound that close. I, I always mention that we go back to Eat It and that was the first time that album on N3D was the first time we really made an effort to sound like the originals. And we got, we did okay on Eat It, you know, sounding like Beat It. It wasn't exact, but, you know, we were, we did okay. Uh, we got really good. And I dare say on the last several albums, uh, these last couple in particular, where there's a lot of programming and, and sounds and sound design, we're like 99.9% there. I mean, you really, maybe only the original artist would know that it's not his track. So we're very, very proud of that. Absolutely. And it is very meticulously done. And it does sound a lot like the original uh, version of the song when you hear it. Except, and this is ironic, Another One Rides the Bus, which is really the thing that first put him on the map, is that tune. Yet it's so diametrically opposed to the Queen version. It sounds nothing like it because for obvious reasons, as you explained. But everything else he's done that I can think of is, is very authentic. Which do you prefer doing, the parodies or the original stuff? I like them both. I mean, I like being involved in that process uh, either way. The parodies actually take a lot more work uh, in, in working on sounds and listening to parts and things like that and having to really dial them in. There's a certain amount of leeway on the originals. Uh, you know, obviously parts are important. We rehearse those. And whereas with the parodies, we don't have to rehearse them because we, we know what the parts are. The, the only question is, has the tempo changed? Or uh, is it in a different key? 
or is there an arrangement change for some reason? But as far as the actual parts, those are there. But we do massage the originals. Uh, that's the time when Al will tell me, you know, ah, try a different fill here or try a different beat here or do a kick here or leave this snare out or whatever it is. And I hear them in the context of everyone else's parts. I mean, we work on those separately at our own, at our private, you know, studios or computers. When we hear it all together, that's when we know it worked. So I'm, I like both. I mean, I like it all. I myself am partial to the original material. I do love the parodies that he does, but I love the originals too, because they're so diverse. I mean, like Buckingham blues, you know, it's blues music, you know, I mean, there's something different every time he, he has an original song, Midnight Star. I always love that guitar solo. It's just a rocking <laughs> solo. Uh, it's got so much great stuff. I'm trying to say, darling, I'd rather have my blood sucked out by leeches, leeches. shove an ice pick under a toenail or two. I'd rather clean all the bathrooms in Grand Central Station with my tongue than spend one more minute with you. 
Switching gears for a second, let's talk about this book, Black and White and Weird All Over. This is your book. You're more or less the archivist for Weird Al, for lack of a better word. Wouldn't you say that's true? Well, I, I've been accused of that. Uh, I mean, the book is culled from my photographic archives, and it's it's uh, basically, it's a unique book for a couple of reasons. There's, uh, I've, I've always taken a lot of photos, and a lot of my photos uh, you know, and, and I, I was taking photos at a time before everyone was carrying around a, a phone camera. So I was the only guy walking around with a camera. Uh, thousands of photos of Al. And a lot of them have, have been published before, but they've all been scans of the photographs. I mean, I've never gone back to the negatives on any of those until this book. And this book is unique for a couple of reasons. One, it goes to the negatives of these photos. So they're, they're dead clean. Yeah. Two, they're, they're all in black and white, which is kind of unusual because I only shot black and white with Al for a very short period. I shot it as a kid. I had a dark room at home that was easy to do black and white. But once I got into color and, and after I met Al, I was really only shooting color until we started doing videos. And I thought it'd be very cool to document these in black and white because that just has a certain vibe to it. So I, for three years, I shot black and white videos. I'm sorry. I'll get and, it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, and, and then the other thing about this is, although a lot of my photos have been seen, Almost none of these black and white photos had been seen before. They were they were developed, and I got contact sheets, and they went to a file cabinet, you know, in, in the '80s, and that was it. So, as I began looking to archive all all of my negatives, my color negatives as well, and I got this idea back in about 2017 that I needed to preserve those. I kind of re-stumbled upon these old black and white photos and took a closer look at them, looked at the contact sheets, and and realized that one, a lot of the photos were quite good. And two, the fans hadn't seen any of them. These would be new to the fans. First thing I did was to ask Al, you know, do you mind if I put these out there? I don't know how I was going to do it, but do you mind if I take all these old photos that you haven't seen yet and start putting them out there? The fans would love these. He says, yeah, go for it. Anyway, over, over a couple of year period, I eventually hooked up with a publisher uh, who specializes in pop culture coffee table books. So perfect. In fact, I had dealt with him about a dozen years ago and sent him a scan of a, of a uh, one of Al's single covers, a rare single cover for a chapter uh, in a book uh, with Al. So I had actually touched base with him a while ago. So he was familiar with me already. Took a look at the photos. I was thrilled. He had his team pick out. I sent almost 500 of these photos and Al approved every one of them. Sent like 500 photos, picked out the 200 plus that would be appropriate for a book. Uh, some of them scan two pages. I don't have a copy in front of me. I'm sorry. But some of these, you open up the book and the photo goes across both, both pages. And it's a nine by 12 book. So it's a proper coffee table book. So some of these photos now are, are 12 by 18 
They're big, much bigger than they ever would have been seen online or in any of the couple of books that have come out or the, the record label use of those uh, of my old photos. And again, these were like 99% of these were new to the fans. Book has done very well. It came out before uh, Christmas of 2020. Uh, we were in process all year during 2020. The pandemic didn't really have an effect on, didn't slow down the book at all, which was great. Right. And uh, did well for Christmas, still selling well. And I got, I eventually got back into scanning all of my color negatives. And it's a project I'll be done with very shortly. And with an eye towards all of the owl related stuff, maybe for a second book, this time in color. Now, a lot of my color photos had been seen before, but again, there's the quality issue. Most of those were scanned from, from a, a three or, you know, four by six photo, you know, on a scanner and then reduced for the web. So there's, they're already not as sharp as they should be. They're already not as color corrected as they should be. They're not as dynamic as they should be as far as darkness and light and stuff like that. And being on the web, they're crunchy and small. If I get to this other book, you know, the, these pictures, even if they've been seen before, will not have been seen in this quality. And with an eye towards that, I'm scanning stuff very carefully, you know, and sending an occasional cool scan to Alan. He just, he loves it. He loves getting this stuff. And once I'm done scanning, of course, I'll supply him with all of those scans for his use if he'd like. But this book did well and, and continues to do well. And it would be nice if there's a second book. That's, that's not completely up to me, but the publisher and I have talked about it. That's a direction we're looking at. I really like the title, Black and White and Weird All Over. Is that your title? <laughs> Actually, it's not. And it's not the publisher's title either. This was I, I'll tell you how that came about. Well, first, I had a title, and I, I came up with this title a few years ago. In fact, I think I told Al in 2017, I said, you know, I, I'm thinking of this. If this is going to be a book, I think, uh, you know, being all black and white photos, a fun title would be, it don't matter if they're black and white, like the Michael Jackson song, which we had done a parody of as well. That's right. Uh, we didn't record it, but we, you know, we snack all night was the parody instead of black and white or black or white was Michael's song. <laughs> anyway, it don't matter if they're black and white. I thought that's a funny tie in. There's a tie in to a song that we had done. It says black and white because those are the photos. You know, people are seeing a bunch of black and white photos after seeing color photos all these years. It don't matter if they're black and white. The unseen photos from the camera of John Bermuda Schwartz. That, so that was my title and my subtitle. So in, in one of the chapters, there's a picture of Al. Chapter five is a picture of Al in a, a tank top with KZZP. KZZP uh, uh, was a radio station, very popular station in Phoenix. In fact, their programming director, Guy Zapolian, was, was this genius who's back when guys actually programmed what was on their, their station that other stations looked towards for you know, a successful programming format. So one of the guys on the show is a guy named Mark Jonathan Davis. Mark is also known as Richard Cheese, Richard Cheese and Lounge Against the Machine. I thought, you know, he had worked at KZCP. He'd be able to tell me how it happens because Al didn't remember why he was wearing the shirt, you know, in the studio, why I happened to be taking pictures and how he even got the shirt. Anyway, I thought maybe Mark will know. So I, I contacted Mark and he didn't, he wasn't quite clear. I mean, we think that uh, Al and Dr. Demento had visited uh, KCCP to promote, probably promote the Dr. Demento show. I, I assume they gave Al some shirts and I think I probably took pictures to send back to the stage so he could send back to the station, you know, here I am wearing your shirt, you know, thank you for the shirts. And Mark just came up with just out of the blue. He says, if, uh, you know, if you don't have a title, you know, how about black and white and weird all over, you know, you can use that. It's free. And I said, okay, you know, I appreciate it. Thanks. Anyway, the, the publisher talked me out of 
both my title and my subtitle. First thing he said is, well, the Michael Jackson thing is a little ancient at this point. You know, I don't know how many people are going to get that joke. And also, you don't mention Weird Al anywhere in the title or the subtitle. It would be nice to put his name in there in case someone's on uh, online searching for Al. The book will come up and maybe they'll buy a book. It's like, oh, well, that's why you're the publisher and I'm just the drummer, right? <laughs> so he came up with a great subtitle. The Lost Photographs of Weird Al Yankovic, 1983 to 86, which describes what's going on and has Al's name in it and says photographs. I mean, there's a lot of keywords in there. And I threw him Mark's title, Black and White and Weird All Over, which again, you get the weird in there, you get the black and white. It's And it's it's clever. It's a good plan words and hadn't been used, had only been used once or twice ever before, according to Google. So that was a fresh title, we thought. So we put Mark's title with uh, uh, the publisher's subtitle, and that's how we got the name of the book. So arguably better title and subtitle than I had, but again, I'm not a publisher. I don't think in terms of, you know, somebody needing to find the book online. It's like, and the publisher said, that's one way we sell books. So, oh, well, that's why I'm doing this. You know, I'm not doing this. Otherwise, I just put them online for free. I think these photos have value. I think so, too. Uh, there were some great ones on YouTube. Uh, him with the nude mannequin, that one cracked me up. Yes. <laughs> well, back in the day, you know, Al Al was just, I dare say, he wasn't too careful about, about the pictures that we're taking because nobody would see them. There was no internet in the 80s. I mean, you know, nobody, they, they didn't really get out there. So he, we took a lot of pictures and, and not just ones that appear in the book. I mean, there's, I have a lot of photos that today he, he might, or you know, even me, would be very careful about taking lest they get out. Nothing salacious, just like really needlessly silly, maybe some questionable things. And it's like, you know, something gets out there and then it's worldwide and you can't take it back. So back in the day, there were a lot of photos taken that we wouldn't take today. And not that that's a... Uh, filthy photo by any stretch, but he might be more careful about uh, taking a photo like that today, knowing that once it appears somewhere, it's, it's out of his hands. It's gone forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a great book uh, from what I've seen. I'm going to go out and get it. I hope everybody goes out and gets it. I mean, you can find it everywhere, probably Amazon. It's, 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 it's on, you know, right now it's surprisingly, they're selling it for 30% off, which is huge. Hmm. Uh, so they and and actually Walmart of all people have the best deal going on the book right now, and uh, it's been on sale since January. I don't know why they keep it on sale, but that's great. And happily, I still get whatever I'm supposed to get for the book. I get it off the wholesale price. So buying the book cheaper doesn't affect what I get. So if anyone says oh, I don't want to take any money out of your pocket, no, 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 go save the money, go buy the book, save the money. I'll I'll make my couple of bucks. That's fine. So Amazon, Amazon is ideal and, uh, and Walmart, if you're so inclined and, and all the other Barnes and Noble and all the independent bookstores that have online presences, it's available worldwide, uh, foils and in, in England carries it chapter <laughs> books in Canada, uh, is, just is the, it, John. Jo Josie just bought it <laughs> on Amazon. Oh, oh thank you. Oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> well, then you saved you saved some money. Good. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> she, she's a big Weird Al fan. She saw him at the Apollo a couple of years ago. Um, oh, cool. That, that was a fun game. Yeah, it was that, the whitest Harlem it had ever been. I've, yes. I've never seen oh, yeah. No, it's, we looked out in the audience and, and there was there was one black guy in the audience <laughs> out of like, you know, 2000 people. And, and it was just it was very obviously not the crowd that's normally there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, Al is such an enigmatic guy to photograph, I'm sure. And and he's 
a lot of people don't realize how incredibly intelligent the guy is. I mean, he was a valedictorian of his high school class. Is Al a perfectionist when he works? He seems like he is. That's understating it. That's uh, He is extremely meticulous, uh, very much a perfectionist, very much knows what he wants, uh, very much knows when he gets it. So when he directs his videos, you, you shoot a video and then you watch it back, you watch that scene back. You know, you decide if you're going to move move on or if you need to do it again or whatever. You know, he knows what he wants. So there's none of this, you know, that's really good. Let's try it a different way. Let's try a few different ways. We'll figure, no, he knows up front what he wants and he knows when he's got it and then it's time to move on. Uh, so he's a great director. Uh, he's, he's a great producer. You know, obviously on, on the parodies, we all know what the song is supposed to be. We don't really need any direction from him. But on the originals, uh, he, he makes sure everything is just right. You know, he goes through, he's, he's a good singer. He's a surprisingly good singer. Oh, yeah. And he will go through uh, his vocal tracks with auto-tune, not to correct his parts and not for an effect, but just to see if they're actually where they're supposed to be, even if you can't hear it. If it's just that, you know, the tiniest bit off, he'll correct it just because in his head, he knows it's right, even though nobody else in the world would ever know the difference. Right. And his sense of harmony is amazing. I mean, he does so many of his own harmonies. And I mean, ju just the polkas that he does, he always has that one big <laughs> epic polka on every album. And, and I always yeah. look forward to hearing what's he going to do now, because he's, you know, he's grabbing a bunch of kind of modern references. But the polka overall is quite a production. I mean, I, I heard the Hamilton polka that he did just blew my oh. mind. I couldn't believe it. That was a lot of work went into that. He, well, he's such a perfectionist that we not only play, use a click to everything, but if it's a song, like the polkas have some mood changes and some slowdowns and you know some obvious tempo cuts and things like that. And that's not, it's not good enough to do that organically. It's all programmed and everything is built into a click that moves, a tempo map, they call it, so that it's massaged into feeling like it's supposed to feel if we didn't have it, but right. so that it's actually absolutely correct and in his mind he knows it's correct he doesn't have to worry about did that move too fast or too slow or did you know was it a little loose if it's to this grid to this tempo map he knows in his head because he's that much of a perfectionist that it's right now with the hamilton polka it was essential to do that i think i counted 53 tempo changes within that song and not just different sections going to different tempos but but ramping up ramping down and it was all to a, a click that moved and you know the whole production I, it was it was uh, challenging it's challenging to deliberately fluctuate the tempo in that way yeah yeah well he knows his polka music as well because there's so many little subtle polka references you know and and, uh, and like you said, he's changing tempo and he's changing feel and there's clarinet parts. And I mean, he's got it down. They're just really tremendous, those songs. Oh, well, um, thanks. And those are fun. They're, they're fun to record and they're, they're fun to play. How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by Providence and Pulverance and Squalor grow up to be a hero and a scholar? A $10 founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter. By 14, they placed him in charge of the trading charter. Alexander Hamilton, my name is Alexander Hamilton, and there's a million things I haven't done. I am an original. 
Peggy. Look around at how lucky we are to be alive right now. History is happening in Manhattan, and we just happen to be in the greatest city, in the greatest city in the world. The world turned upside down. 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 The down, down, down. Hey! And the Oceans rise, empires fall. We have seen each other through it all. And when push comes to shove. gets made we just assume that it happens but no one else is in the room where it happens we are outgunned what outmanned what outnumbered outplanned we gotta make an all-out stand and yo i'm gonna need a right hand man hey hamilton sir he knows what to do in a transition with a influence in french i mean hamilton so you're gonna have to use him eventually what's he gonna do on the bench i mean hamilton no one has more resilience or matches my practical tactical brilliance hamilton you want to fight for your land back my right hand man back uh, I'll get your right hand man back Hamilton. You know you gotta get your right hand man back Hamilton. I mean you gotta put some thought into the letter But the sooner the better to get your right hand man back It must be nice It must be nice To have Washington on your side It must be nice It must be nice To have Washington on your side Look back at the Bill of Rights Which I wrote Somebody has to stand up for the South Somebody has to stand up to his mouth If there's a fire you're trying to douse You can't put it out from inside the house I'm in the cabinet, I am complicit In watching him grabbing at power and kissing If Washington isn't gonna listen to disciplined dissidents This is the difference, this kid is out! Like you're running out of time hey! Right day and night Like you're running out of time hey! Every day you fight Like you're running out of time Like you're running out of time Are you running out of time? Let me tell you what I wish I had known When I was young and dreamed of glory You have no control Who lives, who dies, who tells your story I know that we can win I know the greatness lies in you But remember from here on in History has its eyes
John, I was, I was hoping that you could recount a story about an injury that you had. I believe you sprained a couple of fingers and a thumb, something like that, during a live performance and you couldn't do a drum solo, something to that effect. And it led to a huge change in the format of the show. Would you be so kind as to tell our listeners about that? It's funny. It was July 4th. It's so 1987. We were on tour with the Monkees. didn't happen on stage. It was after a show, and, and Steve J and I, Steve's the bass player, still bass player, were, were messing around on the bus, and, and I jammed my hand against his. I think we were both reaching for a helium balloon or something, and I sprained these, these three fingers, which, which are uh, pretty crucial to playing the snare drum. You know, there's, they take the, the, the hand and the fingers and the arm take a lot of shock, you know, throughout the show. And... We had a couple of days off before we were going to play again, but we were heading to Red Rocks in Colorado uh, near Denver and a pretty cool place. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, my hand still, it was sprained. I'd been to a doctor. I just really needed to take it easy with my hand. I knew it was going to be tough enough to play, but there was one part of the show on that tour, because we were the opening act being a summer tour, any outdoor shows we did, we were going to be in the daylight pretty much for a 7 8 o'clock show, it was still going to be light out. And we were running videos, films, even at that time in our career. It's part of the show. And those films enabled costume changes. Well, we all had a bit, you know, that before the tour, they said, we're each going to, for these costume changes, at least for Al to change, someone on stage is going to have to do a little bit for, you know, two or three minutes. My bit was going to be leading into Living with a Hernia, parody of Living in America, where even though, if there was a film running, we would all go back. We had these tuxedos. But if we couldn't do that, at least Al would get changed and we would stay out there. Actually, I was going to stay out there and do like a drum solo, a stupid drum solo for two or three minutes or whatever it was going to be. Well, I realized this first gig coming up where that happened was Red Rocks just a couple of days after I sprained my hand. And it was really going to be a stupid drum solo. I didn't want to work any harder than I had to till my hand got better. And I, I mentioned it to Al that afternoon. I said, it's just the solo thing's not going to work out. Is there anything else we can do? So he wrote out an introduction, you know, since it was going to be my bit, he kept it my bit. He wrote an introduction to do for him that he and the band would do, like introducing James Brown. And, you know, ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome, you know, of course it was funny. Would you please welcome the second hardest working man in show business? You know, and then we go, you pow, you know. And and so we had this whole thing. So he wrote out this thing for us to do and we kind of rehearsed it. And, okay, you know, you're going to hit the the orchestral stabs. You know, this will be the note. Sometimes we're going to do two, you know, pow, pow, you know. And so he wrote out this script. I still have the original piece, piece of paper that he wrote it on. And that's what we did. That worked so well. I think we kept that. Instead of using the video that went into that song, we just kept the bit. We just kept the uh, the introduction that I read, and that the whole band stayed up and and you know played with me. We kept that until you know just a couple of years ago. Eventually, when we stopped doing "Living with a Hernia," it became the intro for the song "Fat." So that injury led to changing what we did, which led to me doing the intro, and it just it worked very well. Not that I'm great, but just what he had written was funny. And it was very appropriate for a James Brown song to do a James Brown intro. Yeah. So that, that was the change to the show that uh, I, I can't imagine would have happened otherwise. So it was of one of those very lucky things. A lot of fateful moments in your career, I noticed. Well, you know, more than a few. Again, you know, showing up at, on the Dr. Nemento show. And Al was usually at the show. He would come home from school and, 
and uh, come down to appear on the show. You know, not every week, but he was a regular on the show. But he was there that night. I was doing my interview. If he wasn't there, there's almost no way he and I would have connected. Thanks so much for listening to part one of our interview with John Bermuda Schwartz. Don't forget to come back next week for part two. 